Please pray with me. Dear gracious Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. Amen. Good morning. Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God, our Father, and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. It is the pits when you get locked out. Right? It is the pits. It can cost time. It can cost energy. It can cost resources. It can cost money. And it can cause stress. When Jacob was a toddler, uh, we lived in an apartment by Concordia Seminary in St. Louis. And one day I was home alone with him. It was just him and me. He was a toddler. And I had to go out to the car to get something just really briefly and was coming right back. It really wasn't going to take any time at all. What I had forgotten was that the doors there at the apartment, you didn't have to lock them. They locked automatically. So inside the apartment was Jacob, who was a toddler, and outside was me, without no keys. That's stressful. And I thought to myself, as long as I can hear him crying and making noise, because he was crying a little bit, I know he's okay, and then he stopped crying, right? So it's like, okay. So I called my wife. I called the super. <laughs> I called the owner. Nobody. I couldn't get a hold of anybody. No one answered. No key, big problem, right? But like I said, he stopped. I stopped listening to him. I couldn't hear him anymore, so I did what any um, loving dad and concerned dad would do. Um, I took all the strength that I had, and I kicked the door open. Um, and by the way, if you do that in an apartment, you don't get your security deposit back, just in case you're wondering. <laughs> you don't get it back, all right? He was okay. And I'm sure you have stories like that. I had a friend who locked himself out of his car twice in one day, right? I'm sure you have other stories to tell where it was stressful. It was not fun. But what if a door were locked, right? And no amount of personal effort... Uh, no, none of your family, none of your friends, not even a professional locksmith could fix the problem. Because of our sinful nature, right? We're corrupted because of, of our sinful nature, because of original sin. We can't help but sin. And because of those things, uh, heaven is locked to each and every one of us. It's locked. We can't get in. And that means way more to us than a frustrating inconvenience or drain of time, energy, resources, or money, right? It's way worse to be locked out of heaven. Not having access to heaven is much worse than leaving your car running with your keys inside. Yeah. Or having to sit on the porch for hours until someone can open the door. We've had family members have that happen. Being locked out of something is the pits. But being locked out of heaven is being in the pit. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God because Jesus has the key. Jesus is the key. He opens the way to heaven for sinners like you and me. He and he alone. 
The problem was that at the time of the gospel reading that we have today in its original context, not too many people knew that. There was a vast array of opinions on exactly who Jesus was. Right? The first question that Jesus asked his disciples, there's two major questions that he asked to address this, his identity, right? The first major question is, who do others say that I am? And the disciples tell him, okay, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, some say Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. And, and it's weird because we're like, where do these, where do these theories come from? Herod's is the most weird. So Herod, the ethnarch, the tetrarch, uh, the one who had John the Baptist put to death, said he had heard about the fame of Jesus. And so he said to his servants, uh, this person who is Jesus, he is the Baptist raised from the dead. That's why he's able to do all these things. Right? Kind of weird. Uh, from Matthew chapter 14. Others thought Jesus would be one of the promised Prophets, right? Elijah. What's the deal with Elijah? Well, Malachi had recorded God's promise to send Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord. The day of the Lord when God comes to visit his people, right? In his fullness. From Malachi 4, 5. Uh, that did happen, by the way. Uh, Elijah did come. And prepare the way for the Lord. Uh, Jesus says that Elijah who was to come was John the Baptist. And if people really paid attention, they would also know Malachi 3. I will send my messenger, the Baptist, and he will prepare the way before me. He did. And the Lord whom you seek will come to his temple personally. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of armies, the Lord of hosts. From Malachi 3, the Lord himself is coming to dwell in his temple as the messenger of the covenant. But many could not fathom that this could or would be Jesus, right? Because they're monotheists. God is one. How do you have the father up here and then some, right? It's... I mean, we have the benefit of many, many years of Christianity to sort it out. Many could not fathom that this could be Jesus. So Jesus asked his disciples, big question number two, who do you say that I am? And Peter makes the God-given confession on which the church stands. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. That is the correct answer, the answer that Jesus is looking for. The answer that God had revealed to his disciples and in this short statement, Peter says a lot. He says a lot. First, he says, you are the Christ. What does that mean? The Christ is the Messiah, the anointed one, one that God had set apart for a very special purpose. Now, there were three kinds of people who were anointed in the Old Testament, prophets, priests, and kings. Jesus is all three, but much more. More on that later. Very specific purpose. He also says, you are the son of the living God. What does this mean? It means that Jesus is not just a man. That's what that means. Peter's confession confirms that when he calls Jesus the son of the living God. Now, I don't know if you know this, but the disciples had already made this confession. 
The disciples had already made this confession and proclaimed Jesus to be the Son of God and then worshipped Him. That's key, worshipped Him. The Son of God is a title that refers to Him being equal with the Father, right? And this happens after the, the feeding of the 5,000, happens when Jesus is walking on the water, and right after this, so feeding the 5,000, and right after that we have um, Jesus praying, the disciples going out of the boat, Jesus walking on the water, uh, telling Peter to come out. Uh, Peter, you know what happens to him. Uh, Jesus brings him up, brings him into the boat, and everything had kind of, you know, the wind had come up, the waves had come up, and everything calms down, and that's when they say to him, uh, you are truly the Son of God. By this special title, the disciples are proclaiming Jesus to be equal with the Father, to be divine. He is God. John 5.18, if you, if, you, if you don't believe me, uh, look up John 5.18. He explains this, right? Writing that many Jews sought to have Jesus put to death because he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God, okay? The confession of Peter, the confession of the disciples, is the confession of the church. The orthodox, faithful confession of the church. Jesus is way more than one preparing the way for the Lord. Jesus is the Lord. God in the flesh. Who visited his people. The messenger of the covenant. Who gives those who believe in him a solid standing. The forgiveness of sins. Through his suffering, death, and resurrection. Which he hasn't brought up yet, by the way. The interesting thing is that Jesus would give this authority to forgive and retain sins to his disciples, to his church. It's called the office of the keys. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. That's why it's called the office of the keys. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Jesus has authority to do such great things and pass that authority on to others. And why? Why? Why would he do that? Because our God is a very tangible God. Right? Our God is a very tangible God. Even though he hides himself in certain ways, he's tangible. You hear this good news every week. This good news ringing joyously in your ears that brings us peace and pardon and thanksgiving and all the things that we need. You hear this every week, this good news that comes to your ears in a very tangible way to give you peace and pardon. That is the key that opens the kingdom of heaven to sinners. It is the key... That helps us to have faith. Congregations call pastors to use this in public on behalf of the congregation to proclaim forgiveness with the authority of Jesus himself. So that it has the same power and authority that if Jesus himself were to say it. I know that's hard to believe. I'm nothing. Nothing. My words mean nothing. But I don't carry my words. I as a call and ordained servant of the word, right? Because the power and authority has been given to the church to proclaim. These words are certain. These words are sure. They do what they say. It is a true gift that many times we don't think about. There's another side to this equation too, one of a more somber note. 
Jesus also gives his church the power and authority to retain sins when one does not repent. We all sin in weakness, brothers and sisters in Christ. We're, we're all sinners. We, we can acknowledge that. And we all sin in weakness. But sinning in rebellion and defiance is another thing entirely. When this happens, we know God's will, yet we remain comfortable in remaining outside of that will. That's not where Jesus wants us. He came for the explicit purpose to call us out of darkness. Out of the darkness of death, the darkness of sin, the darkness of the devil, the darkness of our own sinful flesh. He came to break those powers. And so it's not okay that we remain in unrepentant sin, no matter how much our sinful nature thinks it's harmless, no matter how much to think it's perfectly fine, it's not. That's why Jesus gives both. The authority to forgive, the authority to retain. St. Paul did this in Corinth when things would get bad. You can read about it in Scripture if you want. A member of that congregation began living in incest with his father's wife. Did not plan to stop. So St. Paul warned the congregation, purge the evil person from among you. Now, this wasn't to be cruel. This wasn't to be mean. It was to get that person who was comfortable in his sin to recognize the depths of the depravity and darkness that he was living in. And it worked. It shook up the entire body of believers in Corinth and brought the offender to repentance. Broke him out of his darkness of sin and death and the power of the devil and his sinful flesh. Who do we say that Jesus is? He is our Lord, our Savior, our God. He has lovingly called you out of the power of sin and darkness and death and your sinful nature. Repent! Because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Christ is the key and he is the door to blessed paradise. Jesus is the Christ, right? Who do you say Jesus is? Because of the Holy Spirit, Jesus is the Christ. One set apart to save us. And he is the son of the living God, God himself, who has given us his word. The father has revealed this to us. The spirit gives us the, this confession and this conviction and this pardon and this peace. On this rock, your Lord has built his church on this rock. Your Lord has brought you into that church and on this rock, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Amen. And may the peace which surpasses all human understanding guard your hearts and your minds through faith in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.